0: got your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians 4. Uh, We did the end of that passage last week. We're going to start back at the beginning of it uh, this week. So Ephesians 4, we're going to be reading the first six verses. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord for you, his church, this morning. I, and this is Paul speaking, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet, and it is a light unto our path. So we pray by it this morning that you would teach us, that you would comfort us, that you would challenge, and you would change us. Would your son be our teacher this morning, we pray, in Jesus' name, Amen. I'm sure you've heard this before. It's a little bit of an urban legend. We're not sure how true it is, but I love the story nonetheless. And so uh, there was once a scuffle between U.S. and Canadian uh, authorities off the coast of Newfoundland. Uh, There was a U.S. aircraft carrier that was sailing, uh, and it spotted a Canadian uh, vessel which was sailing right towards it. So obviously they were going to crash if nothing was done, so the U.S. captain gets on the radio and starts to call out uh, to the Canadian vessel. And he says, please... Uh, divert your course 15 degrees uh, to the north and that way we won't crash Uh, and then the canadian vessel responds well please divert your course 15 degrees to the south so we won't crash well the u.s captain didn't like this answer so he gets back on and he's getting a little bit more angry he says please divert your course 15 degrees to the north the canadian is very very calm well, please divert your course 15 degrees to the south. And at this point, the U.S. captain is really mad. and he says, "Sir, this is the U.S. captain of the aircraft carrier, the USS London. We have three cruisers, three destroyers and numerous support vessels that are with us. And if you do not divert your course, we will undertake safety measures to protect our ship." A little pause. Canadian responds, "Well, this is a lighthouse. your call. It's funny what pride can do to people, isn't it? And as we turn this morning and as we talk about this idea of pride, the struggle that we have with pride, I think many of you who have gone to church for a long time, you know the punchline of this sermon. Uh, In order to combat selfish pride, uh, we need to be more humble. We need to be more loving. And sure, that's true. But I also think that there is probably few more important topics to talk about and that scripture talks about than this topic of pride. Uh, Andrew Murray, uh, who was a Puritan pastor, he writes in his book, Humility, he, he writes this, unless pride dies in us, nothing of heaven can live in us. And as Bryant read earlier today uh, in Proverbs, pride comes before destruction. I hope you caught that. And so the Bible is very keen to point out the dangers of pride, the reasons why pride is something that we ought to pay attention to. Yet, if you go around reading modern ethicists, modern people who are writing about the question, what is the good life? And oftentimes they're trying to answer the question, what is the good life in a world without God? What you'll find is something different. When they talk about pride, when culture talks about pride, pride's not actually dangerous at all. In fact, they see pride as essential to any good life. Pride is essential to any good life. And you can throw that quote back up there, Will. Ayn Rand, who's an atheist author, uh, she describes the virtue of pride like this. And literally, it's in a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. She says this, The virtue of pride can best be described by the term moral ambitiousness. It means that one must earn the right to hold oneself as one's own highest value by achieving one's own moral perfection. And above all, and this is the kicker, it means one's rejection of the role of a sacrificial animal, the rejection of any doctrine that preaches self-immolation as a moral virtue or duty. Humility is not a virtue. Pride is a virtue. And that's what culture has kind of moved in because, you see, when we talk about pride, culture sees pride as important because pride as defined by culture is the realization that you are an independent creature. That you have the physical, the moral, the spiritual skills, talents, and gifts to make do and make something in the world. You are your best asset. And as Rand says at the end, anything that might reduce you to the role of a servant or beneath someone is both inefficient and it's also dangerous. So pride in culture has been seen as a good thing. But I want us to ask that question this morning is that true? Taking culture on its terms for a second, is pride actually a good thing? And I would say it's not, and here's why. And I think you might agree with me. Because have you or anyone you know ever been or have, have they ever reached that level of confidence before? Have they ever gotten to the point or have you ever gotten to the point where you are so sure of yourself that you need absolutely no outward external validation or affirmation. See, I don't think, I've never experienced that. I don't think you have ever experienced that. And so as we come to the scriptures this morning, we look anew at these dangers of pride. This is at the heart of the issue of why pride is so dangerous and humility is so important. See, pride from a biblical standpoint is not the realization of our independence. Pride actually is the lie, straight from the depth of our soul, that we don't need anyone but ourselves. And the Bible constantly reminds us again and again that we were not created independent creatures, but we were created to be utterly dependent. And what pride does is in the search of external validation, in the search of of being all about ourselves, we will do crazier and crazier things to defend that lie that all we need is ourselves. And so as we turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul is calling us to the exact opposite, right? He's calling us to a life of humility. And it's no coincidence that Paul does this because throughout the New Testament, time and time again, you would be hard pressed to find any description of Jesus that at some point doesn't mark on his humility. See, humility is the key to combating the dangers of pride and to actually living as a disciple of Jesus. You can't be a disciple of Jesus and not be marked by humility. But as we've been discussing this summer in our series on riding elephants, and you remember you have the rational rider and the elephant and who's actually in control, the emotions of the elephant or the rider who's on top, you can't just think your way to humility. And I think we like to think we can, but you can't just think your way to humility. So what Paul does for us this morning is he gives us a pathway, not just head, not just things to think about, but head, heart, hands, things to think about, things to feel, and things to do that allow us to grow in humility. So I want us to take a look at that this morning. And the first thing that we're going to see is Paul gives us something to think about. And he tells us to think about our dependent life, our dependent life. And what does that mean? Well, if you look at verse one, uh, Paul's gonna start by noting his own status as he's writing this letter. Uh, Paul is in prison at this time, he's in a Roman prison. Uh, But I want you to note what he says after he says he's a prisoner. He says, I, a prisoner for the Lord. See, in Paul's mind as he's writing this letter, there is a connection between his circumstances as a Roman prisoner and his calling as an apostle. See, Paul sees his imprisonment as being for the Lord. His circumstances are being used by God for his purposes. And what I think this is is a beautiful snapshot into the way Paul saw his whole life, because he was entirely dependent in every circumstance and moment of his life on the calling and the will of the Lord. See, Paul saw his life as he was simply clay in the Lord's hand, which the Lord could use and mold however he wished. And in this particular instance, at this point in time, what the Lord wanted Paul to do is to be obedient in a prison cell. And we hear that, and I think many of us would say, yes, we understand that. We've heard that before. But on another level, probably on a heart level, that is a terrifying thought, to think that we are utterly dependent on the call of God. Because I think a lot of us like to be to think about being dependent on God, but only after we've had some say in the matter, right? I think a lot of us like to view dependency as relying on God after we've had the opportunity to kind of establish our position. We establish where we want to be in life. We want to establish our situation. Then afterwards, you say, God, would you come bless where I am? God, would, can I lean on you where I am currently rather than the other way around? And isn't that what pride is? creating circumstances and positions favorable for ourselves. And in Genesis 3, that's the core problem. See, in the, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, I wouldn't necessarily say that the first sin was the actual physical eating of the fruit. I would say it comes one verse earlier, in verse 6. And so this is from Genesis 3, uh, verse 6. So when the woman Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, then she took the fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. See, what do Adam and Eve think about in the Garden of Eden before they eat that fruit? Well, they see the fruit and it says, this makes us independent. See, no longer would we need to trust God and be dependent on him, right? If they eat the fruit, they would have this self-contained ability and knowledge for themselves to be able to create the good life as they saw fit. And yet what happens? This decision which they think would bring about flourishing in life, which would allow them to get to where they wanna go, what does it actually do? It brings about destruction, hurt, pain, anxiety, sin. Right, you see, I have no doubt as Paul is writing this letter, that he envisions for himself being in different places. That if you gave Paul the choice to write his own story, he probably would not have put himself in a prison cell. He probably would have gone other places to do ministry that he felt like would be more fruitful. And you see it time and time again in scripture. Paul wants to go one way, one, or one place and the Lord redirects him. The Lord calls him away. And not only that, but oftentimes, the Lord would put him in prison. See, Paul is taught humility over and over again in his life. And he's coming to trust that he is dependent on God for everything. And that's the lesson that every human has had to learn since the Garden of Eden. And so the first step in growing in humility, what we need to know in our heads is that we are dependent on God. We need him every hour, every moment. We can't be faithful parents unless we rely on his strength and his wisdom, no matter how many podcasts or books you read to the contrary. No business success in this room has ever come by your own power, no matter how talented you are in your certain industry, but it all comes by God's hand. If you're raised to a high position of leadership, it wasn't because you deserved it, it's because God established your position, he wanted you there. See, we are dependent on God in all things. And whether God has you in a season of abundance, a high season, or if you're in the valley and in a low season of suffering and difficulty, God calls us to steward those situations, to be obedient in those situations. And that is humility. Humility is not being independent, but humility is being utterly dependent on the calling and will of God. It's like what the Proverbs say, where we might make plans, but the Lord directs our steps. See, our lives have to function with the realization that we are dependent on God. So that's what we need to know. But we can't just think our way to humility, can we? So there has to be some other things. And so number two, what do we ought to feel? What should our hearts feel? And that is that we ought to be awed by grace. We ought to be awed by Grace. See, just knowing of our dependence on God isn't enough, and that's why Paul continues to go down. So go down to verse 4 with me. We're going to skip a section, and we'll come back to it uh, at the end. But Paul writes this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. And I want you to catch that little parenthetical statement that Paul adds. Just as you were called to the one hope that belonged to your call. And so what call is Paul talking about there? Well, he's talking about a life of dependence. He's talking about a life of surrender unto Christ and unto God. But Paul's not simply saying, I just want you to live according to that call. He says that earlier, but that's not what he says in that statement. He says he wants you to live to the one hope that belongs to that call. Meaning this, there is actually more than just simple obedience to Jesus that is needed for a life of humility. See, the gospel, a life of surrender, can't just capture your mind, but it has to capture your heart. See, we have to not just know dependence, but we have to be awed by grace. We have to feel it. And what do I mean by this? Well, Uh, recently, uh, I got to take a trip out with the Young Life kids out to Crooked Creek Ranch uh, a few weeks ago. And we were out in Colorado. And so this was my first time in the Rocky Mountains. I'd never been out there. My mountain experience was pretty much the Smokies. Uh, And I had been told by many different people that when you get out there, the oxygen level is a lot lower. So it is a lot harder to do physical activity when you're up in the Rockies. And so I knew that very well going up there. A lot of us knew it. Uh, But we decided to put that to the test the first night. Uh, And so we're running around, uh, and we get done with this physical activity that we've done. uh, And I look around at all the (laughs) students around me, and we are all panting. And for the first time, we all looked at each other, and we all knew that the oxygen level was lower. We all knew why we were panting, but for the first time, we felt it. And it's in that moment when we felt it when we decided to change course. Okay, things are going to be different this week because the oxygen level is indeed lower. We have felt it, and it is harder to do things up here. And in the same way, I think we know grace. I think we can see grace. I think we can define grace. We can name it. But Paul wants us to go one step further. If our lives are to be reflective of Jesus, if we are gonna be disciples of Jesus, we not just need to know grace, but we need to feel grace. Grace needs to actually seize our hearts. The reality needs to move us that we have what we don't deserve in Christ and that you have been affirmed that you have been welcomed and valued based not on anything that you did, but on everything that Christ has done, right? The gospel can't just be this general story that we come to hear, but we need to see our lives in light of the gospel. The gospel is your story. And when we feel grace, what happens? That's when we begin to get the hope that Paul talks about. Andrew Murray uh, says this, The highest glory of the creature is in being only a vessel to receive and enjoy and show forth the glory of God. Can only do this as it is willing to be nothing in itself, that God may be all. Water always fills first the lowest places, and the lower, the emptier a man lies before God. The speedier and fuller will be the inflow of the diving glory. See, our pride is something we've lived with since the garden, and I don't think it's going away on this side of heaven, but what grace does, the grace of Christ is invites us not just to think differently, but it encourages us to feel new things, right? That quote I read from Ayn Rand about the fear of humility, the fear of making yourself less, what's behind that? Well, it's the fear that if you make yourself nothing, you will get nothing. Right? Because culture says if you want to be fulfilled, then you have to earn your keep. You have to earn respect and affirmation. Yet the humility of being a disciple of Jesus means that the grace and the glory of God flows in quicker. Right? To be nothing but a vessel, to empty yourself, ironically means more and more grace right laying down means more and more love and affirmation from the father and i want you to hear me say this there there is a danger to emotions right there is a danger to emotionalism right because you won't always feel grace like you won't always feel like you're on a spiritual high and feeling grace is not necessarily that prerequisite to spiritual life right but i also don't want us to drive into the other ditch where we think that just walking in the kingdom of god is just an intellectual exercise and just knowing the right answers and that means we're walking with Jesus. There is something where the gospel works on not just our minds, but it also works on our hearts. It moves our affections. It moves our hearts towards him. And so as we think about our dependence, I also pray that we would feel grace, that we would be awed by grace, that when we come here in worship, we're not just coming to engage our minds, but we're coming to engage our hearts. To receive the power of the gospel not just in mind but in heart with grace put us in awe and that leads us to humility so dependence we know our dependence we feel grace but what do we do what's something practical we can do to grow in humility and that's what Paul gets to in the middle part uh, around verse three says in humility and patience bear with one another in love Make every effort to maintain the unity and the bonds of peace. And think about it. What we've been talking about, pride is necessarily self-centered. right? Pride is necessarily self-centered. Pride convinces us. It's convincing us of the lie that all we needed is, is ourselves. Whereas humility, what? It forces us outward. It forces us outward by nature. Um, to kind of show you, what I'm talking about here, we were hanging out with uh, Brian and Yvonne Watt the other night, uh, and Brian said something extremely profound, I don't even think he knew how profound it was when he said it, Um, but he was talking about driving home with his little baby son in the back seat, uh, Jackson, and Jackson starts crying, Uh, and Brian makes the comment to us, and he says, it's funny how when you start hearing a baby's cry, it makes you defy all logic, right, because you know that baby's okay, But when you start hearing that cry, all you want to do is stop the car, slow it down, and soothe your child. I think all the parents in this room can agree with the statement like that. But why is that? It's because as humans, we are made in the image of God. And our lives are designed to be interwoven with each other. They're designed to be interwoven with each other. We are created to be so relationally connected that we naturally will move towards each other. In pain, we will move towards each other to comfort. In joy, we will move towards each other to celebrate. See, we weren't created just to be dependent on God, but actually we were created to be dependent on God and to depend and be depended on by each other. And so if we want to actually grow in humility, the action step is to move towards community, it's to put ourselves in situations where we won't think of ourselves, where we are not the priority, but actually we think of each other. Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each view you must look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, pride communicates the opposite, right? Pride communicates independence, Pride communicates sufficiency. Pride communicates my own power and strength. But if you look around, what do people want? They desperately want validation. They want affirmation. If you ask somebody what is the deepest cry of your heart, oftentimes it will sound like, I just want to be loved. I just want to be known and loved. See, we were made for that we were made for validation. We were made for affirmation. But if we start going around and searching in the world for it, guess what? That search will come up empty time and time and time again. But if we come to the Father, if we come to the Father in community, right, it actually is a school of humility where we have the freedom to give ourselves away to serve without any expectation or condition, and we can make ourselves less so that others can be exalted. And in this way, friends, we actually experience more life, more affirmation, more love than we could have ever earned and received on our own. That is the upside down way of the kingdom of God. By making yourself less, the glory of God and the grace of God, you get more of it, right? Humble people, if you look around at the most humble people, you know, humble people are entrenched in community because that's the way that we grow to be more like Jesus. If we want to follow Jesus, our call is not just to him, but it's to each other. Uh, as I close, um, in the book, A Horse and His Boy, it's a Narnia book by C.S. Lewis. Uh, there is two characters. There's the boy, Shasta, and he has this talking horse, uh, Bree, and they kind of go on some adventures, and Bree is a very proud a horse. And there's a one scene in this book where uh, they encounter Aslan together. And Aslan is like the Christ figure of this whole story. And so you have a proud horse, Bree, who's encountered a lion, Aslan, who is the Christ figure. And Bree becomes terribly frightened. He's been proud this whole book, but he becomes terribly frightened when he sees Aslan for the first time. And Aslan begins to talk to him. Now, Bree, he said, you poor, proud, frightened horse, draw near. Nearer still, my son. Do not dare not to dare. Touch me. Smell me. Here are my paws. Here is my tail. These are my whiskers. I am a true beast. And you see this moment of realization in Bree. And Brie says in a shaken voice, Aslan, I'm afraid I must be rather a fool. Happy is the horse who learns that while he is still young. And the human too. See, pride often keeps us from the invitation of grace. See, we believe the lie that it is all about ourselves, but when we allow ourselves to stop, to reflect on our dependence, to feel the gospel of grace, to interweave ourselves in community, what happens? We might get to see the glories of Jesus anew and wonder anew at who he is. You see, it's in humility. Following in the pattern of Jesus, who made himself nothing, became a servant for all that we get to see the power and the glory of God afresh. And in humility, we experience fullness in his presence forever. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we're thankful this morning. We're thankful for your example of humility. That in our pride, we chose to go our own way. But you came and you ransomed us from ourselves, from the sin which corrupted our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would show us our need for you, our dependence upon you for everything that we have. And would you help us to be faithful stewards of the circumstances you put us in to make ourselves less so that you might be greater. Lord, interweave us in community, all us with your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name.